the Jewish views on Gene Wilder. As the acting legend dies at the age of 83, we look back at his work. Star Music, the Israeli group, tell us why they're coming to London in a couple of weeks. And Medical Ethics, we hear about the conference that questions who cares for the carers. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. The Hollywood actor and comedian Gene Wilder died this week at the age of 83. The much-loved star, who started life as Jerome Silberman, found fame in the 70s and 80s in a number of iconic films such as The Producers, Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein. He also touched the hearts of many children as the title character in Willy Wonka and The Chocolate Factory. His death, according to his family, was from complications associated with Alzheimer's disease. In the United States, the actress and comedienne Roseanne Barr has attacked the Democrat presidential nominee Hillary Clinton, labelling her an anti-Semite and saying she'll be the absolute death of Israel. The comments were made on Twitter, where Ms. Barr also said Mrs. Clinton is surrounded by Jew haters and that she would sell nuclear weapons to Hamas if the price is right. There's been no responses yet from the Democrat camp. The chief rabbi, Ephraim Mervis, has described the induction of his son Danny Mervis as the senior rabbi of Mizrahi in Melbourne as an extremely proud moment. He'll take up his post in time for Rosh Hashanah. Rabbi Danny Mervis had been studying in Israel before going to Australia. The veteran Israeli politician Benjamin Ben Eliezer has died in a Tel Aviv hospital. He was 80. He was born in Basra in Iraq and moved to Israel in 1950, joining the military four years later and serving as a commander in the Middle East wars. He entered politics in the mid-80s, holding several top government posts. He spoke Arabic and was on friendly terms with some Arab leaders, including the deposed Egyptian president Hosni Mubarak, which helped him bridge gaps between Israel and the Arab world. And finally, more than 60 years after the synagogue in Durham closed its doors, a new community of about 12 Jews has sprung up. Called the Durham and Northeast Liberal Jewish Community, it held its first service last month in Newcastle's Reform Synagogue, saying it was happy to share premises in the area. Its next event will be in a church, and there are plans to hold Friday night dinners and Shabbat morning services about once a month. That's the news, now the sport with Andrew Sherwood. Thanks, Viv. Israel manager Elisha Levy has played down his side's hopes of reaching their first World Cup in nearly half a century, saying they face a very difficult task to qualify for the 2018 tournament in Russia. The side take on Italy in their opening qualifier on Monday, and with Spain also in their group, Levy told Jewish News, the balance of power between the teams is clear to everyone. Although it's a very difficult group, the aim is to be competitive, achieve as many points as we can, and win the support of our fans. Elsewhere, the head of Israel's Paralympic Committee has said he's hoping the country can win some medals at the forthcoming Paralympic Games in Rio. Dr. Ron Bolotin, professional manager of the Israel Paralympic Committee, said, We probably won't match our eight medals in London, yet we still hope to win some. And finally, two weeks after announcing they had folded from Jewish football, Boca Juniors have announced their back. The team have amalgamated with North London Rangers and will once again compete in Division 2. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sport at www.jewishnews.co.uk. 
Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome along to this week's edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your edition of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me in the studio to go through it is editor Richard Ferrer and Sarah Rothberg, the design editor for the paper. Welcome to you both. Let's start off, as we always do, with the front page, shall we, Rich? And today, what do we see on the front page? Well, I'm sure a lot of our listeners would have been members of the guides or the scouts or the cubs when they were young. Dib, dib, dub, dub. Absolutely. Dib, dib, dob, dob, I think. Oh, is it dob, dob? I'm so sorry. Well, you can tell I never was a member, can't you, then? <laughs> um, I'll ask you to recite the Pledge of Allegiance to the Queen and Country later. Anyway, obviously, the scouts, the cubs, it's all about instilling respect, values, shaping your life so you've got skills and qualities that can take you forward in adult life. Unfortunately, that hasn't gone through. That ethos hasn't filtered through to the uh, Palestinian scouts who have just named a scouts course in honour of somebody who murdered three people in Israel last year. The World Scouting Body is now launching an investigation after somebody who was killed by a terrorist outrage on board a bus in Tel Aviv last October. His son has written a piece saying how disgusted he is. And uh, obviously the, the World Scouts organization was something that was launched here in the UK. See if I, I know my history. Uh, just before the First World War by Baden-Powell. Bear Grylls, I believe, is now an honorary member. So it's it's got great British values and it's instilled great values for almost a century now. And obviously to see this sort of influence, this pernicious, ugly side of it being worn as a badge of honor, really, by young Palestinian kids... I, I feel sorry for the kids that enroll in these things and, and get these sort of individuals as role models. Okay, but let's try and help people understand the story here. Just to make 100% clear, the person who it has been named after, it's absolutely named after this particular individual, not just someone of the same name. There is no denying that. No, the, the gentleman who boarded a train in Tel Aviv last October is a fellow called Baha Alan. He was one of three people so-called martyred when he killed three people, including a gentleman who was a grandfather, and his name was Richard Lakin, and his son has written this piece explaining how upset and disturbed he is by the Scouse decision in uh, the Palestinian territories to go ahead and do this. This really is kind of in keeping with a lot of the poison, I think, that Palestinian children are brought up with. Uh, you know, school kids, programs, they're taught to hate from a very young age. The, we have formative years here. I think the Palestinian children have deformative years. And they are poisoning the next generation and the generation beyond that. And until we get a point where we can actually have some sort of mutual respect and understanding and just pull back from the brink, I see absolutely no hope. Forget my generation or my daughter's generation, but, but their children's generation as well. This thing is, is just a cycle that just seems to get more spiteful as the years go on. Yeah, well, it's very sad that that has come to light, especially in the week when we learn that President Mahmoud Abbas, he obviously of Hamas, has said that they are ready to enter peace talks. So let's hope that there is more truth behind that. Anyway, it's not all doom and gloom in this week's paper, Sarah, I'm delighted to say. And for those who have a keen eye and watch programmes such as The X Factor, they would have noticed that a certain contestant may have had Jewish links. So if we can confirm that she did indeed have Jewish links, I'm, of course, talking about rapper Honey G, which I think thought I nearly mistook for singer Honey G, who actually is quite a big name in the likes of South Africa and Israel. But it's not. It's Honey G from Harrow, isn't it? Honey G, yes. She's representing North Wizzle. I'm sorry, she's representing where? North Wizzy. North Wizzy, was it? Northwest London. Oh, I see. The Harrow area. How silly of me. Yeah. I I couldn't 
tell if she was being serious or not, if that she thought she was very good or I don't know. It wasn't. Well, from having seen her audition, she certainly did appear to be taking herself very seriously yeah. and seemed somewhat disappointed when the judges didn't quite respond with the same level of seriousness. Right. Mind you, to be fair to Sharon and Nicole, I thought they, that I they think were they enjoyed being, it, yeah. They were taking it seriously enough. Yeah, and they put her through, so three, she got three yes votes. And she had to be doing something right then. <laughs> I think she was entertaining. She was entertaining. I just, I'm not sure if it's a she was certainly, great, great singer. She was certainly entertaining. I kind of think that it's a bit of a spoof and we're, and we're all kind of... Oh, the, Richard. ...at the butt of this joke. <laughs> How could you? Well, there, it, it was a very, very refined act in terms of oafishness and, and foolishness. I'm sure a lot of people now have, have seen it and YouTube does a wonderful thing on a Sunday morning if you don't actually want to sit through all the mediocre acts that actually think that just holding a note is actually a talent and you want to actually see the car crash and the cringy stuff. Sunday morning's the perfect time just to go on your phone and have a look at it, which is when... I was most familiar with the work of Honey G or her real name which is Anna Georgette Guilford uh, she's 35 and she's from the aforementioned North Weezy aka Harrow the interesting thing I find out about X Factor <laughs> is it was launched to kind of find the next generation of chart talent you're supposed to make a career in in the creative arts if you did well in in X Factor these days you're more likely to have a, a career if you win the the Bake Off or another one of these talent shows or the Sew Off rather than go to the X uh, Factor the Great British Sewing Bee if you sewing don't mind bee, not the Sew Off but, <laughs> but these are shows where the winner clearly has a demonstrable talent and it's a useful talent a talent that you can actually get a career out of and actually make a salary out of and and, and start building a livelihood out of barely carrying a tune and getting one rip off Christmas number one does not a career make so it's got to the point now where X Factor no longer kind of fits that remit of creating pop talent because you might as well go on another reality show if you want to make a career out of it well who knows I guess that reality TV has developed a fair way since the X Factor launch many 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 years ago however long ago it was but it does feel like it's been around for oh, a very long this? time sorry sorry I've just heard Phil former X Factor finalist Stacey Solomon or should I say Stacey S, is just joining us here in the studio. Stacey, lovely to see you. I can't believe it. Sarah, that was uncanny. My Thank mouth's you very so much. dry. My mouth is so dry. <laughs> <laughs> she does an uncanny, Stacey. That was uncanny. However, I think we need to take it back a little bit to a more serious subject there. World Jewish Relief now in other news. World Jewish Relief figures have been released for the refugee crisis appeal that they launched earlier on in the year. And I believe that as we wouldn't expect anything less from WJR, they've done some great work. Yeah, results of their year-long Syrian refugee campaign were released this week. We've published it in the paper. They've helped 17,500 people and raised 944,000 pounds. Wow. You know, we are spoilt rotten when it comes to charities, and we, and we champion them as much as we can at the Jewish News and the Jewish Views. I think we've got over 1,000 Jewish charities here in the UK, but... I think World Jewish Relief, you just have to take your hat off to the stuff they do around the world. They have got projects from the former Russian Soviet republics to Rwanda. They're helping highlight the, the achievements of the righteous uh, Gentiles across Eastern Europe and again here in the UK. The, this is an extraordinary life-changing charity and they do the Jewish community here and across the world absolutely proud. So there's a lot of pain and a lot of suffering that we've all seen on, on the TV over the last four years of the Syrian civil war. But just a slight microcosm, a slightly positive spin on it has been done by uh, the Jewish community, spearheaded by this wonderful organisation. 
And also the other thing as well is that we heard last week on the program when we we're having our discussion on the schmooze about why is it that Jews go into the medical profession, that it could be all part of Tikkun Olam and making the world a better place. If there is one organization who you could definitely say sums that up, it's got to be World Jewish Relief. So really hat off to them. I think we've got time for one more now. And rabbis, speaking of the refugee crisis, rabbis are actually warning now of a furthering refugee crisis yeah, the, the British government, as we know, has been very, very slow to drag its heels. I think they've only let in about a thousand people in the last four years that have been seeking asylum in the UK. Well, a group of progressive rabbis, liberal and uh, reform rabbis, have just come back from the Calais jungle. And in association with Citizens UK, they've now presented the government with a list of uh, vulnerable children that they want to get access to the UK. And they've uh, put an ultimatum down to the government. And they've even said, if you don't let them in, we will find housing for them in our synagogues and in our community centres. So uh, I think this this issue is starting to really build, I think, and uh, hopefully this ultimatum, I'm not really sure if the government's going to do anything if they haven't done anything yet, but it's, it's all good and, and it's all good progression, I think, in terms of doing the right thing. And why do you think it is, Sarah, that we are as a community so passionate about these sorts of stories? You know, if we see someone in human crisis, it does tend to be certainly key members of the Jewish community that step up to the plate and they're the ones who want to do something about it. Why do you think it means so much to our community? I think we're quite a family oriented community and we care about each other. And that kind of love that you see in the family home is extended out to people in need. And you're right. And there was a, a survey done only last year that said actually the Jewish community gives more outside the community than it does to itself. Yeah. So I think those values and that ethos. And you're right. It's family values, respect for the elder, respect for your elders, uh, uh, education, food, coming together at the end of the week. All those, I think, uh, all that ethos kind of generates towards tzedakah and giving and, and uh, having a positive outlook, I think, towards yourself and your neighbours. It certainly does. Well, unfortunately, that is where we have to leave the pay-per-view for this week. But thank you both very much indeed. Don't forget, you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can always read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. Now, as you heard a little earlier on in the news, the Hollywood actor and comedian Gene Wilder died this week at the age of 83. He was known for appearing in many great works, including The Producers, Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein. But of course, his most famous was when he appeared as the lead in the 1971 film Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. To talk about his incredible career and to explore why he really was more underrated than he deserved to be is the Jewish News supplement editor and all-round film buff Bridget Grant. Bridget, I suppose, you know, with credits like that, I think it's amazing that Gene Wilder wasn't known for so much more in his career. Well, he was he was low-key as it didn't seek the limelight in the way that a comedian probably would or a comic actor because it, it, you know it's wrong to present him as a comedian. He wasn't in that way. He was a gifted writer because actually... It's interesting you said Young Frankenstein because one of the jokes in Young Frankenstein, of course, is to gentrify the name, is to call him Frankenstein. He wants everyone to refer to him as that, where, of course, it's Frankenstein. So that's kind of that. It's but the he, Jew in me. Yeah, I can't help you can't, it. Exactly, <laughs> which is what he would say. But it was his idea. That film was his idea. And he was actually working with Mel Brooks and he'd sketched out this idea on a, a pad for the film. And, you know, what about the idea of, of, of the, you know, the grandson of the great 
creator being a, a fairly sensible scientist who kind of doesn't want to take part in all of that and Mel Brooks loved it and hence it, it, it you know it took flight but I, I was you know you're always it's been a year for kind of mo- what I would say monumental iconic deaths in, in the entertainment industry. It's been horrific this year hasn't yeah. it? It really it, has. It, yes and each one kind of takes you back a bit you know for me David Bowie was a personal hero so that was a big one and also Victoria Wood but with this I, I have real sentimental attachment because my, I lost my father 25 years ago and one of the great memories of my father was him loving young Frankenstein particularly the scene in which Gene Wilde dances with the monster to putting on the Ritz which is a fantastic moment they're both done up in black tie but what was magical about him was this watery-eyed sensitivity that he was you felt that there was a soft soul there oh definitely there's such a gentle presence about the way he were even in Willy Wonka as well even though he was supposed to be really quite a recluse individual who just didn't want to make contact with other humans and you could tell in the early part of the film that he portrayed Willy Wonka as this person who just didn't want to make contact with anyone and then he slowly but surely opens up all of that was done with such sensitivity and as you rightly identify and I don't think I realised it until now it was all really through the eyes wasn't it yes those beautiful sort of blue watery eyes and, and journalists that met him said that that you know that that struck you even even more so when you when you were with him like all great performers his, his career built on sadness he lost his mum when he was 14 very close family suffered a lot of anti-semitism actually um, his mother got this idea that it would be a wonderful thing to send him to a military kind of academy in Los Angeles and he was victimised quite badly there beaten in some cases and it was only he was a boarder so it was only when he came home that the parents saw the level of, of abuse he was suffering and took him out of course he married two Catholic women then went on to marry Gilda Radner who as he described she was like a young woman but an old Jew which is how he used and she made him in turn more Jewish because he he wasn't a great you know he, he felt Jewish but again didn't take a great deal I think he fell out of love with the with the religion during the Vietnam War where he went back to go to temple to synagogue with his parents and the rabbi was supportive of the soldiers going out there so he never fell back in love with with his faith because of that but Gilda sort of alighted this wonderful feeling for being Jewish and then of course he met Mel Brooks who he met when he was in a play with Anne Bancroft and the late Anne Bancroft. Yeah, the late Anne Bancroft again. I had a wonderful moment meeting both Anne and Mel. Um, oh, wow. Never, never Jean, but Anne and, and Mel. And uh, I had dinner with them in New York once, which was one of those moments where you just go, pinch me, pinch me, pinch me. I know, me am all I the really here? No, amazing. And of course, the Jewish... It's really interesting, actually, as well, because he said that he made a film called The Frisco Kid. Do you know The Frisco Kid? I don't personally, but I'm not overly familiar with a lot of his other works. Right. I mean, to me... Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory will always be the film of my childhood that I just remember loving watching over and over again. And I still do even now when I watch yeah, it. It just takes me right back. Exactly. Come with a pure imagination. That song is absolutely superb. But The Frisco Kid is about a rabbi who in the Wild West... It's, it's not one of Mel Brooks's. Obviously, it's on that Blazing Saddles. It was made in 1979. And his co-star was none other than Harrison Ford, who is 
maternally Jewish, Harrison Ford. His mother is a, a Jewish Russian. And he, this is, was, again, he plays this rabbi who is carrying the Torah through the Wild West, trying to deliver it to this town. He referred to Mel Brooks for help with the Yiddish expressions that he needed to use. And apparently Mel Brooks made up a whole load of fake Yiddish expressions, which no one ever argued about. He said he never knew to that day. But he said that was the point that he he thought of himself as playing a Jewish character in The Producers, where he plays Leopold Bloom, of course. He didn't ever think of that as being Jewish. So even though us as the audience, to us they were two Jewish producers, that was never actually said. Their faith never came into it. And he said, oh, I suppose you could say Leopold was Jewish. And of course, we had no doubt that he was. And of course, with someone like Mel Brooks, who is a legend in his own right, it must have been... It must have been so surreal, I suppose, for Gene Wilder to work alongside him, because if he was never after the same kind of limelight and recognition that Mel Brooks has achieved, then it makes you wonder what must have been going through his mind as he used to work with him alongside as equals. That's what is so mind blowing, really, is that he was on a par with Mel Brooks. He just probably didn't a realise it and b want it. That's what's so extraordinary. No, that's it. Again, low-key. I mean, I interviewed all the, the, the children who were in Willy Wonka years later. Actually, I think I interviewed them about four or five years ago, and they went on like Augustus Gloop, you know, went on to become a banker in Germany. And, you know, they still go to those, you know, they, you know, they're the people that have the conventions. They will turn up as the children from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Oh, wow. But they all said that on set, he was quite remote. You know, he did keep that that remoteness at the very end he sort of you know hugged them and so on but he he was quite remote and I think that he didn't seek that which is why when Gilda Radner died I mean they were only married for five years he chose to come kind of out from the shadows to work for the cancer charity that he continued to promote after she died and I think he had a connection with Princess Diana through that charity but a kind of a very you know gentle and uh, I think it was sad to see I mean like in our minds he's always wearing a purple tailcoat and a you know a top yes, hat and, the orange top and then to yes. see some of the pictures that the papers produced it, it's sad to see some, because you those people are in our minds forever forever young and and it's hard to see them sick or ill I think well, I think what's nice about it is that, especially when it comes to film stars and also musicians who die, it means that although they might not physically be here anymore, of course, their work lives on. And I'm utterly convinced that it would be the case with Gene Wilder, even if he wasn't necessarily the most media-hungry actor and comedian out there, and he didn't make endless productions he was more about quality not quantity and that quality really will stay with us i think yeah oh absolutely and i i think that that listeners will it's worth them seeking out the frisco kid a rabbi trekking across the american wild west facing up to bows and arrows alongside harrison ford i mean that's got to be one for our listeners he's a polish rabbi it's very very funny Bridget Grant, Supplements Editor and all-round film buff talking to me there about the incredible life and works of the late Gene Wilder. 
You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Adam will be joined by community volunteer Liz Hirschkorn and actor and photographer Tony Honigberg. They'll be discussing care in the community. Plus, Clive will also be talking to Rabbi Mordechai Wallenberg about a forthcoming conference that unpicks that very subject, asking who cares for the carers. But first, Israeli group Star is coming to the UK as part of Tikkun Unplugged. The group were, of course, quarter-finalists to potentially represent Israel in this year's Eurovision Song Contest, and they'll be performing in London on Sunday the 18th of September. Entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton has been speaking to Dan Isaac from the group to find out more about it. She started by asking Dan to tell us how exactly Star was formed. When the band goes out full-on rock and roll style, there's five of us. There's uh, the drummer and the bass guitarist, and then there's uh, the three front men. Myself, Dan Isaac, born and bred England, London, northwest London. Bradley Rubinstein, who's from Essex. And Ori Murray, who is from Seattle. We are passionate about our music, and we've come together from all you know, walks of life in terms of, you know, genres and music and background and music, so on and so forth. And we come together on stage and it's really interesting what happens. The dynamic is phenomenal. You know, there are sounds they are coming from like all over. The, it's just like a massive, massive, massive sound on stage. And, you know, we watch the crowd get blown away. And like, we really, really love what we do. How did you Um, inspire people with our passion for music and our passion for life and our Torah Torah life? And it's a pretty awesome, I would say, privilege to be part of the band. How did you guys meet? So Ori and Brad, uh, Ori being the rapper who was uh, born and bred in Seattle, like I said, he was learning in Asia Torah. And uh, Bradley Rubenstein ended up there as well. Ori, after quite a few months in yeshiva of kind of shedding his previous life, found, although he really enjoyed learning and whatnot, he got to a point where he found, you know, there was a certain emptiness in his life. And his rabbi recommended he started writing rap again. And he started writing, you know, and his writing reflected his new way of life in Jerusalem and the old city. And he started, you know, he, he started looking for a band and he heard that Brad Rubenstein was part of the yeshiva there in Asia Torah. And Brad has a, a very interesting background in music. He had a band called Lisp. They were signed to London Records. And when London Records fell through, that gave him the opportunity to pursue his love for, you know, Torah learning. At the time, he was also in the middle of becoming more religious. He basically ended up in Asia Torah in the old city. And Ori literally... He, he like on a daily basis said, yo, you're going to make me some tracks. You're going to make me some beats. And slowly but surely they got together in uh, in, in Bradley's Mahmud. Mahmud is a, uh, a bomb shelter room, which every building nowadays has. Every apartment has, you know, any house has. And that's where his, stu- his makeshift studio was. And they started making beats together and songs. And around about the time when they had roughly six songs already recorded, was when they decided it's time to actually put together a band so we, they could perform those songs live. And that's when they found me. Right. I actually was learning in the old city in Tiv Arie, which is right next to Aish. My musical uh, background was, it didn't really extend 
further than, you know, high school bands and whatnot. I was backing vocals and drummer for a high school band. And uh, they heard that I could drum. I originally came in as the drummer. And there was this one track which they introduced to the band, which I felt sounded a lot more Sephardic sounding than the average song that they have worked on in the past. And I suggested, you know, being someone who was brought up in a Sephardic home of Chazanim, cantors, Sephardic cantors, I grew up singing Sephardi songs and I had the voice for it as well. I never really done any um, lead vocals before. I was always backing vocals with the drums. But uh, as soon as they heard me sing that song, Sephardi style, they were like, dude, get off the drums. You don't, you don't play drums nearly as well as you sing. And I became lead singer. And wow. we've got a new drummer in. <laughs> and that is more or less the uh, history of our beginnings. And that was about six years now. So about two albums. And I don't know if you guys know, we were on the Kochava show, choosing the uh, Eurovision representative for Israel. I was going to ask you about that. What was it like and how did yeah. you get chosen? You were in the quarterfinals, I believe. We got to the quarterfinals, the, the last eight, and it was... Such an amazing experience, I have to say. At first, we were kind of apprehensive, being a religious, if you like, Haredi-looking bunch of guys. We didn't know, you know, what sort of response we would get, but we were so warmly, warmly welcomed. I mean, if you see the clip, the first clip, uh, we sang a cover of In the End by Linkin Park, which I think we absolutely blew out of the water. It was such an awesome experience. And at the end... We got off the stage and we spoke to the judges and each one of them had the most warm, lovely messages to say. And we reciprocated with, you know, it was just lovely, lovely. That first episode on TV was just breathtaking for, for all of us. It was such a great experience. And we really felt like, you know, part of the nation. We felt at home. We felt like family. And it was clear, and this is, you know, some of the messages that were actually said by the judges, so some of the things that were said by the judges, it was clear to everybody that it doesn't matter what stripes and shape or whatever it is, where you come from, who you are, the bottom line is we're all one people and music is definitely something that brings everybody together. Yeah. And that is something that is really, really true and powerful and it's something that we use to our advantage. So you've got um, you've got a wonderful a message really which brings you all together and you're coming over though to london so you're going to bring that message with you that's right yeah please god september 18th we're going to be playing a show for tikkun which is for the young professionals in london uh, followed by a show in chigwell which is going to be interesting and um we have plans to come back again in november and do a university campus tour which will be centered upon the shabbat project it's uh, going to be very exciting. And you'll be doing a whole show on your own or is this something that you're doing alongside Tikkun? Tikkun, I think uh, every year bring in bands. I think this year they decided to bring Star in. Have you travelled anywhere else with a yeah. group? Yeah, we, uh, we've had a couple of shows abroad. We did UK tour about five years ago, which was a major success. We went around the university campuses. We did a few shows for Asia Torah and we did some of the schools, Hasmo, has many in boys and girls and so on. And uh, we also did a, a weekend tour of Krakow. They have a music festival every year and they brought in Star, who represented Israel. 
in their Jewish music festival, which was awesome. And uh, we also did about a week's tour uh, in Los Angeles about three years ago, which was fantastic. Apart from that, we've been all up and down Israel, whether it be University of Haifa, um, Tel Aviv, a few uh, Mike's Place shows in Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, so on and so forth. Uh, So, yeah, we've been around. Excellent. And hopefully you're going to be a rising star. And where do you see yourself going in the future? Well, in the future, we are going to be concentrating on releasing music videos, which we're probably going to call something on the lines of Star Unplugged or Star Studio Sessions, something like that. It's going to be uh, the band live in the studio playing these really beautiful, raw tracks. Uh, it's kind of similar to the Manish Turner song. I don't know if you guys yeah. are familiar. We brought out a song just before Pesach, Manish Turner. That's the vibe, the kind of vibe that we're going to be aiming for. And we plan to, you know, release a whole album's worth of studio sessions, just like the Manish Turner track. Us in the studio, no extravagant lighting or anything like that, or any crazy videography or anything like that. It's just going to be us in the studio with our instruments, and it's going to be a real live feel Great. to the music. Well, good luck with it all, Dan. And if anybody wants to look you up on the website, how do they do that? So it's uh, starmusic.com. We're really active on Facebook. If you check us out on Facebook, Star on Facebook, that's where we announce our events and release our videos. We have the odd post every week or so. That's that, yeah. Great. Thanks very much for that and good luck. Thank you very much. Thank you. Dan Isaac from Israeli group Star talking to Kate Fulton there about their forthcoming performance here in London on Sunday the 18th of September. For more information and indeed to acquire tickets, you can always go to tikkun, that is T-I-K-U-N dot co dot U-K, tikkun dot co dot U-K. Coming up in just a moment will be this week's Schmooze. And just a reminder that we live stream the Schmooze every Thursday evening from 7pm British Summertime on our Facebook page. The details coming up in just a moment. But do make sure that you join in and watch the Schmooze live as you can now interact and get your comments heard on the Schmooze. It's yet another way that you can share your Jewish views with us. Speaking of which, if you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can always email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash Jewish views or on Twitter. We are at Jewish views UK. Now, as a people, I think it's fair to say that the Jewish community are known for being a very caring community, especially when it comes to our own friends and family. However, a forthcoming conference being held at Woodford Forest United Synagogue asks the question, who cares for the carers? An interesting and thought-provoking comment, which Clive Roslin will not only be unpicking on the schmooze in just a moment's time, but he's also been speaking to Rabbi Mordechai Wallenberg from the Woodford community to find out why they are hosting such an event. Clive started by asking Rabbi Wallenberg that very question the conference is based on. Who exactly does care for the carers? It's a very good question. And uh, the other thing is that a lot of people don't realize they're necessarily carers. So somebody is looking regularly on an LD parent or somebody who is looking after a partner who's going through difficulty or 
you know, any number of possibilities. When we initially mentioned it, most people said, well, I'm not a carer. And then people started thinking, well, wait a minute. I take my mum to the doctors once a week. Well, wait a minute. I, I help out in a centre once a week. Wait a minute. My partner needs physical support, you know, or my daughter needs help with the kids. So we actually realised there's a lot more carers out there than we think. So one of the ideas is to look at support and to look at ethical issues around that and Jewish issues around that in terms of how much one puts oneself out. Also just some general awareness of issues that can arise. You know what what strikes me, you you say Jewish feelings about that, is that there was a time when Jewish families always cared, the whole family cared for someone who was ill or needed care. Nowadays, it seems to me that most of the care is given to these people by places like Jewish Care. You're absolutely right. I think the proof is if you say carer to most people, they think of a paid carer rather than perhaps a family member or a spouse. So that does seem to be the way we're headed. But it, 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 I mean, I've got a community of over a thousand people um, and it amazes me how many people are actually looking after somebody on a regular basis. And they wouldn't say put themselves in that category, but they are. So what is the inaugural conference going to try and do apart from talking about what we're talking about now how can they help one of the things we wanted to do it started as a legacy for joe cordell who had been a very pious lady who unfortunately passed away last year um, and her husband felt he wanted to do something in the sort of religious and social sphere so i suggested that we do a sort of conference or afternoon on it started as medical ethics and it's going to be sort of perhaps the traditional uh, end of life issues, organ donation, the things people usually ask about. And then we had a committee meeting who was saying it's a bit morbid. And actually, there are many other aspects to that. So the focus shifted to look at things like life after cancer for survivors, supporting those who are caring for others. How far does one push oneself when one's looking after somebody else? You know, who is providing support? So what we've ended up with is perhaps a mix of a little bit of hopefully awareness about Jewish halakhic issues generally and things for people to be aware of, things like lasting power of attorney, issues with capacity and things like that. And also just what support is out there in the community for people, whether it's Jewish care, whether it's Macmillan, whether it's Jamie or High Cancer. These are some of the organizations that will be having stalls and people will be able to speak to people. And we really want to just support people and connect them with the organizations out there and also raise their awareness a little bit of some of the issues they might not even think of that they might actually want to come and talk about, they might even want to ask their rabbi about to be aware of sort of traditional Jewish views on things. So what are the most important Jewish views then? If I were a carer, what would you answer? How would you answer me? Um, It's a very good question because I think that actually one of the biggest issues which we face is making sure people are looking after themselves. You're no use to somebody else if you're not looking after yourself. And there are certainly sort of traditional discussions and halakhic discussions on that. I think, honestly, the focus is going to be less halakhic and probably more social and welfare, which is absolutely fine because that's important to us as a community. Um, I think one of the key things is a lot of people don't realize how much of a burden, how much stress they are bearing on a regular basis until either it sort of comes toppling down on top of them when there's a crisis or they suddenly wake up and think, wait a minute, I'm doing this on a regular basis and I've got no support and I've got no network and I've got no professional training. And to make people aware, to put them in touch with other people who are also looking after people, to help them with support and resources available and to realize this is a really important value for us as a community looking after people you know chesed and kindness and looking after other people is a basic jewish value and it's something every community every family does but it's certainly something very central to us and as you said earlier it's something that's been outsourced in many families and many communities for very good reasons because people have a lot of day-to-day stresses they're working longer 
more women are working, people are living further apart. But nonetheless, for those who are caring, there's definitely not always an awareness of what they can actually do to support themselves and thereby support the people they're caring for more. Well, you see, I'm quite glad you said that because um, I don't want to be personal, but I, I have been in this position myself. And I can remember a time when people would... Jewish people particularly would surround you, family and friends would surround you and say, can we help? It seems to me that nowadays that doesn't happen. I think there is no question. I'm seeing it in my pastoral work that people have far more stress in daily life and possibly people are, you know, we're perhaps slightly more, uh, our constitution is quite, perhaps not quite as strong as the previous generation. I remember when I started in the rabbinate, we're getting back probably 13 years, and um, I was in Cardiff. I went to visit a lady who was in uh, Bupa Hospital at the time and the person on the desk said, oh, gosh, not another one. I said, what do you mean? They said, this lady's had like 20, 30 visitors a day. And she was, you know, an older member of the community. And all her family and friends were coming to visit. And they'd never seen anything like it. And they were amazed. They thought it was fantastic. I'm not saying that doesn't happen anymore. I'm sure it does. It's the same with we're trying to find people to volunteer for things. It's always difficult. You know, people have very good reasons to be busy. And life is much more stressful. And my own father, when I mentioned what, what our mortgage was last year, sort of nearly fell off his chair. He said he couldn't imagine paying anything like that, you know, 40 years ago. It's just unheard of. Rabbi Mordechai Wallenberg talking to me there about a forthcoming conference that explores medical ethics in the community and in particular asks the question, who cares for the carers? Now, if you'd like more information about the conference, which takes place on Sunday the 18th of September at Woodford Forest United Synagogue between 2.30 and 5.30 p.m., then go to their website, which is the us.org.uk forward slash Woodford Forest. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Moves, that part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining Adam Bradley and me today are community volunteer Liz Hirschkorn and actor and photographer Tony Honigberg. The subject today is based on what you've just been hearing. We felt that the question Woodford Forest United Synagogue are asking at their forthcoming conference was so thought-provoking that we needed to unpick it right here on the schmooze. Liz, let's start with you. You've done some very caring work for charity, in particular for Israeli war veterans. But who would you say cares for the carers? Well, that's, that's a difficult question because I mean, people that have to care for other people, they often don't have much time for themselves, you know, depending on the degree of care. And often, I think, they don't get cared for. I think they have to do so much... I don't know who cares for them, really. They need some outlet or, or sort of some escape from it, and I don't think that's always possible. One of the things that always crosses my mind is that in Jewish families, people always cared about the carers in the past. They don't seem to do so much nowadays. Do you agree with that? Well, I, I think that doesn't happen nowadays because people are so busy with their own lives that they forget about the people that are caring perhaps for their parents or for a sibling or whatever. I remember I also helped out with the Israeli war disabled, as Liz did, and often with the carers there, they suffered as much trauma as the trauma group that they were looking after, the people they were looking after, and nobody did care for them. That's and that's true. in Israeli society, mm. which we would have thought would have had 
carers caring for the carers, if you like. Adam, what would you say about that? Well, there are things around, the, things that are available for carers. I know there are certainly things like holidays, respite holidays, for, say, parents who have got a child with a disability who literally are 24-7 carers. And there are, there are organisations, there are hotels and things where these people are actually given respite because, of course... There's that funny kind of situation, that dynamic where who is a carer? Say you're caring for your your child. Who would want to say, I need a break? You know, it's almost a taboo to say that, but of course they need a break. It's you know, almost it's, there's nothing wrong with recuperating. Yeah. We're talking about extreme situations of caring. That's why they do yeah. need it more. But what, what about what about the ones a, that, that that are not so extreme? Say you you have a parent and you have to take them to the doctors or go shopping for them and whatever else you might do for a parent. I know I do it with my mother, but you know I was fortunate. I I didn't need anybody to care for me because I had other work going on around me and that was my break from it if you like but it was the same thing mm. i took her to the doctors i took her shopping and uh, and all the other bits and pieces so but who like, cares who yeah. cares for those people mm. that maybe not in my position where i could cope with that but can't cope with that if it's all on one person, it's very difficult if that person yeah. who's caring has a support system around them as well then it, it's a lot easier but often that's not the case often, you, you see people don't realize how difficult it is i have been as i've said before i have been both the carer and the patient and i would much rather be the patient than be the carer because the carer is nobody thinks about the carer they don't they they worry rightly about the patient or the person who is ill or the person who needs help. They don't think the carer needs as much help because it is such a concentrated and difficult job. The, the carer often needs medicine to, to cope with caring for the patient. That often happens, doesn't it? But is there, are there organisations? I don't know if there are. I mean, Well, there are certain things. I mean, just to go back to what Clive was saying, this phenomenon isn't exclusive to the Jewish community. Oh, no, no not at all. It's, it applies yeah, to everybody. Yeah, it does, yeah. yeah. But as the thing, as I've said already, the thing that really surprises me is that nowadays the Jewish well in the olden days let's say in the olden days a few generations ago the carers in Jewish families were looked after by other carers of yeah. the carers yeah. but this doesn't happen but that was anymore. other members of the family wasn't it I think fam yes. when families are much closer together I, th I think that, in, cer in certain that's aspects of Judaism and their families does, are still that close does together. still happen to a degree where the caring is shared around different people so that no one does have to I think so. You know, have so much of it. Exactly. Yes. I know for a fact that at Jewish Care, we did recognise that this is a problem in the community, that there isn't very much care for the carers. Jewish Care Interact is a website that has been launched now that does exactly that. It's, it's a resource, it's a facility, anyone with a disability... Older people that need just some advice, some just pointing in the right direction. And on there, there is a um, section that does deal with carers and supporting carers. And what I find, what I think is really very interesting about that website is there's a forum section where carers can connect with other carers. And I think that, initially, that's a great way of, of supporting them because... They can empathise. That, they, they understand each other. They can share information, share, you know, it, it, and that, that's, that's, so, that's okay. They're still not getting a proper break, though, are they? 
they're still going to be talking I about what they do. The website they... does will direct you to places that can provide now, that. now this is all right for people that are computer savvy there are a lot of old people that aren't computer savvy who finds out about them where do they go and how do people know where they are it's hard to find it has those to come, people. Maybe, through, maybe in, through the doctor's surgery or something quite, like that. Or unless they're in, in a residential home, for example, um, a care home, then then, then it's there. the health worker, the care worker, will, will refer them. But often, to sometimes they're not in a care home. They're caring for people yeah, in their own are. home, and the only communication they have is with maybe with their own doctor. Yeah. And, and maybe the doctor doesn't see it, because doctors only get, what, 10 minutes for each patient these days. Yeah. yeah that's been news, hasn't it? And, and they haven't got time. But uh, that's the big thing, though, isn't it? Thing time. Is, no one's got time. Yeah. The whole okay. thing, no one's got time. You're absolutely right. The whole thing is this, that if you are a carer living at home with the patient and doctors and, and professional carers perhaps come in to see how the patient is, nobody ever thinks about how the carer is feeling. It needs someone to come there and sit down and sympathise and talk to them and spend time with them. It's not saying, OK, you can go out now, you can go out shopping, you can go out and, and enjoy yourself because we're looking after the patient for the next couple of hours or where they're going down to Jewish care to be looked after Jewish care. Actually, what Adam said before about this forum, I, I'm thinking now, when you say who would understand, other people in that situation will, of course, understand what what somebody's going through yeah. as a carer. And might actually yeah. have... I mean, you, you go online and you look up support for carers, and there's a lot of websites out there. Whether there is the right kind of care mm. or support, and whether it's actually that well known about. But you see, I don't. I personally don't believe it's the support from other carers or other people. It's support from those that are close to you. It's the support from people who know you, friends, relations, who don't. It, it's oh. not because they're being unkind mm. or. They're being unthinking you, in a you, small way. You did talk about respite for, for the carers. I, I'm going, going to go back 60 years. My grandmother, who lived with us, was registered blind. She lived with us. My mother was her carer. And I remember that they would send my... Or someone, I don't know whether it was Jewish care in those days or what the equivalent was, would send her away for a couple of weeks, my grandmother, to somewhere else down to Bournemouth right. to, to right. a respite home or something like that, which would then give my mother a break yeah. for a couple of yes, weeks. Yes, that's another very good thing. Which that's is another way of way doing it. it. Yeah. Yes. But does that happen much later? I don't know. I, I think with know. children it does, doesn't it? If it's a, with disabled children or children that, that need this sort of care, there are holiday places for them to go to. It gives the family a bit of a break. Yeah, that's when true. they that's go on the, on the holiday... Is there anybody going with them whom they know and whom they can talk to and whom they can speak what they feel to them? That's oh, the that's point. That's the bit we don't know. That, well, that's the see, bit that's, that we need to... It's the personal mm, caring that I'm talking about. Yeah, the counsel- really. Well, not even the counselling, just to know that there's somebody there you can talk to and... and Who understands. What's, understands. Yes. Yeah. You see? I think that's a big thing about it. it. It's It has to be someone who understands the situation. And nowadays, it would seem to me that very few seem to understand the situation. Mm. The only people who, who do understand are those who perhaps have been through similar experiences. 
Then you've got Correct. to try and find them, and so they can come and help the person who's who needs the carer, who who needs caring. And a lot of people now you pay somebody or have somebody to do the caring. They're not necessarily doing it themselves. That's because no, of, of the way that. work has worked out. Mm. People are busy doing well, their things. That's what I was talking about earlier. That's mm. not good, is it? Well, if you're caring for a family member and you're the main carer, that is very hard. You need some outside help. That's yeah. very. That's a, that's a difficult one, isn't it? Because if you're paying someone, I've seen this happen where they pay people, but you then don't get the same carer all the time. No. So there's no continuity with, with caring for a, yeah, that it's, person. It's but that's to, an extra person as a as It's an extra person, but it's got a, if it's always an, an extra person every time they come, it's not the same thing. No. You need someone who can understand you, who know the story. And once they know the story, they can come back and make them feel good again. So are you saying that the care for the carer should come from the family and friends of that person. Well, they're always used to be. Or an outside person. It's it, probably it, better from within the family because the person that's being cared for would know the other people. And they can share the workload. And they can share the workload, exactly, yeah. yeah. It's funny, though, it's the hidden carers that are the issue, which is what you were saying earlier, Tony. Mm. It's about the children of the parents who take them to the doctors, to, exactly. to the hospital, yeah. to the wherever. And they may not say, you know, they may not want to admit that it's become well, really difficult. They often don't realise that they then are carers. They are, yes, that's and right. And that's an issue in the first they're place. They're not recognised as carers. No, yeah. because they're not treated as if, they, you know, some people are treated it's, as if they're expected in that, to. In that yeah. instance, it's not a full-time job. It, yeah. it's, it's two or three days a week, two or three times exactly. a week, maybe. If you they, get the lack of recognition, yeah. how can you ever yeah. get support? And yeah. if they're struggling to cope and they don't want to admit that they can't cope and it yes. just gets worse yeah uh, I right. think yeah. you feel like you're failing if that you're can often, coping that can often yeah. be husbands with yes. wives or, or wives yes. for husbands can't it yeah but the, most people do should realise that the person is, is suffering it is mm. It's obvious to everyone, isn't it? It should be obvious, but I think people hide it well, this don't is what they? I'm saying, people yeah. hide their their feelings, and uh, people see what yeah. they want to. See. You know, they might say, oh, "Well, you know, they seem to be coping." So on the surface, they, they don't they, want they, to. Well, that's an You say, "Oh, you say, oh, but, oh the, this person is coping." You say, and "Well, then that's you feel an excuse not to help." Basically, hmm. I, th I actually think that people. You know, it's easy for us sitting here together. With this is what we're talking yeah. about. But I think in the day-to-day -day life, people I don't think people even think about if your cousin is caring for your aunt or uncle or something. I don't think people think they get so caught up in their day-to-day -day business. That's certainly true. Yeah, that's right. They don't really see them as carers. Like, well, well, he's just taking his mum to the doctors. Yeah, that, just as a matter of that's what children so do. Exactly. Yeah. So for the extended family, it's sometimes mm. if yeah. they can't see what's happening, they're never going to offer that but support. That's what, that's what I've been trying to say ever since we started this discussion. <laughs> we Why got there in the end. doesn't the extended family know? They should know. A couple of generations ago in Jewish life, they did know. But also in those generations ago, everybody lived around the same family. These days, people live yeah. such distances. But there was a community, that, that so you had community support as well as the family support. And everyone was involved in everyone else's day-to-day mm. -day yeah. lives. Yeah. They're not now. No, really not, not at all. Even within the community, they're not yeah. involved. Yeah, quite. Oh, uh, well, there we are. I don't know whether we've come to any final 
agreement about this, but I'd, let's hope that a lot is done at this inaugural conference, which is going to look into Cares for the Carer. And my thanks to our guests, community volunteer Liz Hirschkorn and actor and photographer Tony Honigberg. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. Time now for our rabbinic thought for the week, and this time it comes from Rabbi Michel Evan David from Edgware Masorti Synagogue. On September 1st, thousands of children went back to school, starting officially a new academic year. Also for teachers, this is an important date, as they go back to have the responsibility for the education of our children. This week's Sedra, Re'e, speaks about how to choose between right or wrong, and knowing that these choices have consequences. We're told, look, I put in front of you blessing and curse. Blessing if you obey my commandments, and curse if you don't. This classical example of the reward and punishment theology looks like a choice at first look, but it is a choice that is not really a choice. If you are good, I will bless you, and if you are not, I will punish you. It's more of a demonstration of power than a real choice. If the words of the Torah bother us, we will do good to realize we do the same with our children. Every time we say to our children, if, followed by a consequence, we're using the same system that the Torah proposes here. If you don't eat your lunch, you won't play later. If you put away your toys, you will get a biscuit. It is similar in school, where the system is designed to reward academic achievement and good behavior and to punish bad grades and misbehavior. So are we being antiquated by doing this? Should we try to encourage our children to do the right thing for the sake of it being good and not because of fear of punishment? As a father to young children, I believe they need at, their, at this age the clarity of a reward-punishment system to make good choices. But I will want to believe that in the future, they will be able to understand and choose good for the sake of it. I want to encourage parents and teachers to use a reward and punishment system as an educational tool, as the Torah did with us, but at the same time to educate our children with the vision of making them understand their choices and to arrive to a point when they will do good for the sake of it, without the need to use fear or incentives. Thank you to Rabbi Michal Evan David from Edgware Mazorsi Synagogue with our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Bridget Grant, Dan Isaac, Rabbi Mordechai Wallenberg. Thanks also to the Schmooze team, Liz Hirschkorn and Tony Honigberg. And of course, you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producers, Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg. You can always download the most recent editions of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk, and you can search for us in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye. <laughs>